it was locked behind this closet door, and they must have changed the locks. My key didn't work on this door. Are y'all really trying to force me to use the, the see-through pulpit? Is that the master plan? I'm not doing it, ever. Ever again. Hey, guys. If I haven't met you before, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, along with Brian Laws. And, yeah, I would love to get to meet you more if we've never really sat down and chatted before. In fact, there's a way to do that. Another QR code that's in the inside of the bulletin, kind of right beside a description of sort of what we stand for as a church. There's a way to get to sort of a welcome card. Let's us know you are here and then maybe even gives us a chance to pray for you for certain requests or get together for coffee or just to hang out. I hope you take advantage of that. Now there's a lot of QR codes, um, but like Trevor said, I'm so proud of them. It takes all of one second. You point your phone at the code, it takes you right to where you need to be. It's so easy, so easy. So hope you take advantage of that. We are going to get into our text now, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. This is the same passage that we looked at last week, but there are some things in there that we did not pay proper attention to, and I'm not throwing under any, I'm throwing myself under the bus there when I say we didn't pay proper attention to it. It's just that we had some big things we were focusing on, and there's some some more uh, sort of smaller things that kind of slip through the cracks. So we're going to go back and look at that this time around, and I'm going to ask if you would to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. God's word says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in these next few moments, the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. I also ask that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we, as we ponder your word. Lord, make it happen. We know that it only happens through the power and the name of Jesus Christ. So we pray now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. <laughs> oh man, we are really struggling with the slides tonight. This, is the, uh, this was the working title that I gave Monica and Brian on Monday, the one that I like, let's just put that, oh, there we go. The stuff we didn't get to, they, they got a kick out of that. They thought it was uh, clever and you were never supposed to see that. Um, but it really is kind of fitting because like I said before, what we're doing is we're going back over the, uh, the verses that were looked at last week and you know, our big focus was on all the talk about blessing those who persecute you. Uh, praying for your enemies, being uh, loving your enemies, and just 
kind of wrestling with the hardness of that. But in the midst of it all, we had verses 15 and 16, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Those were the pieces that kind of slipped through the cracks as we looked at the bigger, bigger picture. And I wanted to come back and look at those things this week. But in so doing, I was reminded of something one of my professors used to say in seminary. It's, it's funny, each one of my professors kind of had their own tagline. Remember Jay Sklar, he was my Old Testament professor, used to always say, context is king when you're reading the Bible. Make sure you see what's going on around the verses you're looking at. Um, there, Hans Beyer, he was a German New Testament professor. He used to always give like German sayings that really weren't sayings in English. I remember one time he was like, you know what they say, don't let the fleas eat your loaf of bread. We're like, N- nobody says that. <laughs> what? what are you talking about? So that was his kind of MO. And then there was Dr. Dan Doriani. He was my gospels professor. And he was the one that said the thing I remember this week. He would always say, gentlemen, dare to be boring in your preaching. Dare to be boring. And he didn't mean by that just like reading a a manuscript in a monotone, you know, like the Ferris Bueller, Bueller, you know, that monotone tone of voice. He didn't mean that. And nor did he mean like not trying to be engaging in some way as we preach. What he meant is that we should dare to be repetitive. We should dare to come back to the same things time and time again. We should dare to keep returning to themes that maybe we think that, oh, everybody's heard that. They're just going to be so bored with it. And the reason he said that is because the Bible is repetitive. The Bible returns to the same things over and over again. The Bible will bring up the same themes. It will give the same warnings against the things that trip us up. And most importantly, the Bible will keep returning in every different forum to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what you're talking about or where you are. Somehow, some way, it keeps coming back to the grace of the gospel of Jesus. The Bible returns to it over and over and over again, like, here's the tie-in with the sermon title, like a broken record. Do you guys, for the longest time, I didn't realize where that saying came from because I didn't really grow up with records. And I, I would imagine not a lot of you did either. Um, I thought it was referring to like, oh uh, yeah, some of you. <laughs> Sorry, Joy. I know you're like you don't need to explain this to me. But for every for uh, for others, I'll tell you if you uh, uh, like an album, an LP. If it had like a scratch or a gouge in it, when the needle came around on the record player, it would just loop the same part of the song over and over and over again. That was the broken record, it just repeated. So that's where this saying comes from. Now you know, today you learned. Took me a while to get that, so. Um, But what was I saying? Oh, the Bible, like a broken record, comes back to the same things over and over and over again. And so my professor said, guys, dare to be boring and do what the Bible does and keep coming back 
to the things it warns of, to the things it talks about, and to the gospel it preaches over and over and over again. Now, I thought of that this week because I was very scared of being boring in that sense. That is being repetitive, bringing to your attention something that we've talked about a lot already. And the reason why I thought that is because as I was looking at the the verses that didn't get really focused on last time, I noticed that there's these phrases. This is verse 15, do not be haughty. That's a word that means um, arrogant, superior acting, disdainful, condescending. Do not be haughty. But then fast forward a little bit. Never be wise in your own sight. Never have this inflated sense of your own intelligence or wisdom or opinion or approach to a matter. And you put that all together, you've got a biblical warning against pride and arrogance and an urging instead to follow the path of humility. And by my count, I've preached probably five or six sermons on that very theme in the last like three or four months alone. (laughs) We've seen it a lot in these recent chapters of Romans, a lot. We saw it in chapter nine, talking about God's sovereignty. We saw it in chapter 11 when we had that metaphor of the olive tree. Just a few weeks ago, at the beginning of chapter 12, there was that phrase, you know, you don't, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And we really camped out on that as we thought about what it means to have humility in the midst of a body that's very diverse. So all that to say, that's just a few examples. There's even more of them. But I feel like every time I turn around in Romans, it's another sermon about the warning against pride and arrogance. And so I look at it this week and I say, Ah, again? The congregation's just gonna fall asleep on me because we've been there, we've done that. We're ready to move on to something new. And if I could personify the book of Romans here, it's almost like the book of Romans is like, yeah, we have been talking about that a lot, but we're gonna do it again. And I think you should preach on it again, Josh. Because we can't afford to miss this. We got to come back to the way in which pride and arrogance has such potential to just paralyze the body of Christ. And to do it in all sorts of different ways. I mean, that's the interesting thing about all these different chapters I quoted to you where we saw this coming up. It's talking about different things. There's different themes happening in each one. And in every case, the warning is watch out for pride that will creep in here and just make a mess of things. There are so many dangerous things in the Christian life, y'all. Addictions like substance abuse, pornography that is just crippling the church, uh, the, the, the infighting we have about our different opinions about current events and politics, so many dangerous things in the Christian life. And yet I feel like pride and arrogance is up there with everything else. And maybe it's even more sinister because a lot of times we let pride in thinking that it's a good thing thinking that it's us fighting for the truth and pushing out those that would uh, debase it. I guess it's not really a profound thing to say. It's the self-righteousness the New Testament constantly is talking about. When your pride and arrogance masquerades as 
love for God. So that's the reason that the Bible keeps coming back to this, and thus it's the reason that we have to dare to be boring this evening and return to it once again. Because pride has ramifications that can be incredibly drastic. Um, You might be wondering about the other things that we saw in the verses that we read. Obviously, we read verses 14 through 21. There was a lot there. We focused on much of it last week. So if you weren't here for that and you're wondering why we're just honing in on that little bit, it's because we looked at most of it last week. However, even in that little bit that we're going to hone in on, there's other things besides the warning against pride. For instance, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Associate with the lowly. So we need to add these things into the mix along with this warning against pride. And, and what I want to do tonight is I want to acknowledge that we very easily could just kind of list through these things and say, okay, here's what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. Here's what it means to weep with those who weep and kind of do it a, a catalog fashion and just leave it there. But I want to kind of go beyond that and not only talk about what each of those things mean, but kind of tie them back into why it is that they seem to be connected to this command about being wary of pride. I think there's a a connection there. And there's a reason why the Bible is saying right next to rejoice with those who rejoice to be on the lookout for pride in the midst of that. And the reason why I believe is because if we're going to do these things, if we're gonna truly enter into somebody's suffering or sorrow or enter into their celebration and goodness, you know, rejoicing with those who rejoice, the biggest obstacle or hurdle that we will face in doing that is our own arrogance and sense of self-importance. That will make it so hard to be able to do this well. It's as if the Bible is telling us, I want you to embrace genuine love. I want you to be able to commiserate with those people where they're at. I want you to be in harmony with all people, but be aware If you are holding on to pride in your heart, if you are holding on to a sense of arrogance and importance that is beyond what you should, you are going to find it incredibly difficult to do this well, maybe even impossible. So that's how we're going to kind of connect these warnings against pride to the other commands that we have listed here. Let me give you an example. So... We're told to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. I've sort of intimated this already, but I believe at heart what that is saying is that you are to enter in to whatever the people around you are going through, to make it your own in a sense. You share that with them. you're, you're, You're in it with them. If they've come up against sorrow and grief and they're weeping, you walk into that with them just like it's your own tragedy. If they are celebrating some amazing thing that's happened in your life, you sing and you dance and you rejoice with them just like it happened to you. Just as if it happened to you, I should say. You essentially are, 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 are letting go of being so consumed by the circumstances of your own life, you're saying, my life is bound up with the circumstances of others and I'll respond in a way that shows that. 
Now, if you have embraced a haughty attitude, so to speak, to use the language of the text, if you are wise in your own sight and have this inflated sense of self-importance, chances are you will not be willing to do that. And the reason why is because you will be so tunneled on your own stuff, the own, your own stuff that you're celebrating, your own stuff that you're worried about, the, your own stuff that you're grieving, you will be so honed in on that, you will not be able to see what other people are going through. At most, it will just be a fuzzy outline on the periphery of your vision. That makes sense, right? I mean, who's got, who's got time to celebrate with others when you gotta worry about your own things? Who's got time to weep with others when you're in a great mood? You're so honed in on what you're going through, it makes it impossible to truly relate to and step into the life experiences of those around you. That's why we're saying that pride is such a hurdle to these things. Same thing goes when we read about associating with the lowly. I learned this week that the Greek grammar of this particular phrase is sort of ambiguous. And what it could be taking as is associating with lowly people, which, listen, I, I hope that doesn't come across the wrong way. It's more probably the more appropriate way to say, like, those whom our culture or society would consider lowly, those who are impoverished, those who are sick and bedridden, those maybe who are in prison, the ones that society says, ah, don't worry about them, but the church is called to say, those are our people. So it, it could be meaning associated with lowly people, but it also, because of that ambiguity, could mean lowly task or lowly jobs, uh, menial labor that many people would think is beneath them. And it, it, you think about it, what, what you're essentially saying when you are uh, giving time and relationships to lowly people, quote unquote, or you're offering your time and your energy to lowly tasks that most would say are beneath them, you're basically saying, nothing is beneath me, I'm not too good for anything, I'm willing to do whatever it needs to be done. And to love on whoever it needs, whoever it is that needs love. But hanging on to a haughty attitude, hanging on to this inflated sense of self-importance makes that, again, virtually impossible. Because you're so fixated on who you are and what you deserve and what you've accomplished that you begin thinking that you're above the lowly thing. I'm way too educated to do that job. I'm way too important to spend time with that person that's not really that important. I, I'm way too much of a leader here to do background behind the scenes work. I need to be up front. I need to make an appearance. I need to be leading the charge like that. These are things that we very seldomly would say out loud, but that's how we think from a prideful heart. And when you begin to really probe into a heart that is arrogant and prideful, you usually wind up there with somebody saying something as, as, as just bold and frank as saying, I'm too important to spend time there. It's ugly. It really is. I remember when I was in college, I remember 
talking to my uh, kind of the guy that discipled me and just talk, sort of laughing to myself about how when you're in an accountability group, the easiest thing to kind of confess to without really confessing to much is like, oh, I've been struggling with pride this week, you know. And, uh, and in my mind, that was kind of like the cop out of like, oh, I'm confessing, but I'm really not saying much that's embarrassing or hard. But I remember my, my discipling uh, sort of partner, he was older than me, he's a guy named Kevin, um, Kevin Reed. <laughs> no, Kevin Dilbeck was his name. He looked at me and he was like, if you really were willing to say what you were prideful about, like to name it specifically, it would be the most embarrassing, ugly thing to share in an accountability group. Right. It can be incredibly ugly. So, all of that to say that holding on to arrogance in our heart makes it so difficult to do the things listed here. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, associate with the lowly, be in harmony with all. But now, I know I only have a few minutes left, I want to flip the equation for a second. We've just talked about how pride is the hurdle to trip us up for doing those things. But if that's true, then the inverse is also true. And doing these things, that is rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, associating with the lowly, doing those things is actually one of the most powerful tools we have in fighting the pride that is so entrenched in our hearts. You guys realize that? Part of the reason these things are close together in the book of Romans here is because you are being told that when you seriously commit to being with people where they're at, weeping with them when they're weeping, rejoicing with them when they're rejoicing, that you in effect are taking the fight to the pride that's still in your life and in your heart. And you're rooting it out. And you're saying, I'm going to war with you. I'm going to do it through these tools being with people where they're at, associating with the lowly, living in harmony with those even that don't think the same way that I do. So, I was, um, I came across a story this week, a fellow that was sharing about this very verse, and he said something that really resonated with me. He said, you know, we, we usually put these two things together. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But he said, I find that one of them is way more difficult than the other. Weeping with those who weep is difficult. Don't get me wrong. It can be very hard. But rejoicing with someone, when they're happy and you're sad, when they just got the thing that you've been praying for for decades, whoa. So he tells a story, um, almost brought me to tears. He's talking about how he's in seminary. He and his wife had been married now for seven, eight years, and they had been trying to have children for quite a while and couldn't for one reason or another. And in seminary, they had built this amazing community. Their neighbors, their friends, the people they went to church with, their Bible study partners, all of them were kind of in a similar walk of life. And there was this one season where it seemed like almost every couple friend they had, just every other day, was like, guess what? We're pregnant. Guess what? We're pregnant again. And every time they heard it, it was just like a knife to the heart. I mean, these are their friends. They want to celebrate. They want to rejoice. And yet what they're hearing 
is that God has blessed this couple in the way that they so desperately want to be blessed, but it hasn't happened yet. So they would rejoice kind of on the surface, but then they would go back to their home and weep. And I found it very interesting, though, to kind of hear what they said as far as how they went about that situation. Because I could imagine, man, should I say this? I'm going to say this with much fear and trembling. Because what I'm about to say could be greatly misinterpreted. There's going to be some wisdom here um, about, hmm, here, I'm just going to go for it. I could see myself in a counseling situation, counseling somebody that they needed to have good boundaries and avoid people that were in that situation, just for self-protection. I could uh, see myself saying to them that, like, you know what, you need to be able to bring up and share with them your pain and have that be the thing that kind of is equally brought up in a situation like And I I think there can be some wisdom to that, especially since oftentimes people that I know and I've talked to or even experienced myself can suppress the things that give them pain and grief and heartache. And so to be able to counsel people, to name that, to say it, to share it with others can be an incredibly good thing. And yet what I read about this person and what they did was not that. What I read what they did is that they prayed. And that they begin to faithfully ask God every day to allow them to rejoice with those who rejoice. To give them authentic joy. And their response was not, I want to run away from this. Lock the doors and draw the blinds. And again, that's why I was a little bit afraid to say that. There is wisdom in drawing boundaries, especially in situations where you know it's going to be painful for you. That is true. But we also have to remember that God has asked us to step into people's experience with them. And that sometimes means celebrating with them even when we don't feel like celebrating. And what they said happened is that the Lord answered that cry of their heart. And slowly but surely, they began to experience real joy with their friends that were going through these things. And what that meant is it allowed them to focus less on their circumstances and embrace the reality that they were part of a broader body of Christ. And they were able to celebrate when another member of the body had good things happen because it was happening to all of them. Again, this wasn't about suppressing what they were feeling or denying it or running away from it. It was about saying, God, your word says that part of authentic love is to rejoice with those who rejoice. If we are serious about doing that and praying for it, what might happen? What happened is he answered that prayer and the grip of an arrogance that made their circumstance the center of everything began to loosen. And it gave them real joy, real freedom, real hope. That's one way in which doing this takes the fight to pride. I'm going to mention one more. One more that's near and dear to my heart. When we talk about associating with the lowly, I mentioned before that that could also mean lowly task, labor, jobs. And when I read that this week, 
I just had this epiphany moment of like, I've seen this in practice before. I saw it with the pastor that I worked with for many years and who mentored me for a long time, Tom J. Savage. Now, I know many of you in this room have never met Tom before. You don't know who I'm talking about, but he was our previous pastor. And he was the pastor on site when I came to town in 2009, all those years ago, as a pastoral intern, which isn't even a thing, by the way. We just made it up so I could come out and have a job. Um, basically live on peanuts and <laughs> in a barn to try to become a pastor. But Tom told me one day, he said, okay, here we go. We're going to go um, help out tonight at this community meal. We called it the loaves and fishes meal. Um, it was at the uh, Episcopal church up in paradise. And we would serve there every Thursday once a month. So that, that doesn't make sense. We would serve Thursday nights once a month. And so he says, okay, we're coming. We're, we're going to go as pastors to help with this meal. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Uh, it must be that what we're going to do or what he's going to do, I mean, he's the lead pastor, he's the head honcho, he's going to show up, he's going to say a stately prayer at the beginning of the meal, he's going to shake hands with the volunteers that are there, tell them how happy he is that they're there, he's going to, you know, do the, the parade wave, make an appearance as the pastor, and then quietly leave. And the reason I thought that is because essentially that's what I had seen. I had come from a couple of really big churches before that. And really the pastor, they were great guys, but they were sort of like sequestered by themselves. They were the pastor up there in the pulpit. And they didn't really go into the trenches and roll up their sleeves. Nobody wanted them to do that. They were like, oh, you're the pastor. You're here to preach and to lead and to counsel or whatnot. Let, let the lay people do the dirty jobs. And so I thought that that's what Tom was going to do that night. But what happened instead is we come in, we say hey to a few people that we've seen, and he immediately goes into the back and starts washing dishes. He washed dishes the whole time. And you, couldn't, you, you didn't even know he was there because he was kind of short and you couldn't see his head over the top of the dishwashing station. But he, I mean, you, do, you did know he was there because he was singing like 80s Sandy Patty songs the whole time. So, and he did that from the beginning to the end of the night. And I saw a little bit of what it looks like to associate with the lowly. That is the lowly task, the jobs no one wants to do, the ones that we think are beneath us. Now, I said this up in paradise this morning. I'm pretty convinced that if Tom was here tonight, he, he makes a showing every now and then at church. He, he would probably like stand up and be like, Josh, you know better. You know, the reason that I went and did dishes in the back is because I had a terrible day and I didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> Which there's a little bit of that that would have been true. But I saw it happen enough that I know better. I saw him do it at the Loaves and Fishes meal, the Jesus Center breakfast, his, uh, his covered pantry that we started up in paradise, every community event, he always came in and he would ask, what's the job that no one else wants to do? That's what I'll do. He's got a master's degree at the time. He's got a PhD now from St. Andrews in Scotland, but he'd still be doing the same thing. I've tried to mimic that a little bit in my ministry as a pastor. I don't think I've done it near as well as Tom has. 
but what I've seen in the little bit that I've able, been able to imitate is that it is one of the most powerful tools we have at fighting against the arrogance and pride that creeps into our life so quickly. And believe me, guys, we as pastors need that so desperately. I mean, it, following the news the last 10 years about different troubles at churches, especially big churches that have national exposure, it seems like more often than not, the issue is not moral failure. Um, it's not some sordid news story as much as it is people that just got a really big ego and wouldn't let go to an arrogance that ruined everything. My prayer and hope is that the Lord would protect me Ryan and our elders from that. And I know that part of the way of doing it is walking this path, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, living in harmony with all, associating with the lowly. And I know I've just applied it to pastors first and foremost, but this goes for all of us. Oh my goodness. I don't think there's any profession, there's any calling in life that is free from the arrogance that would creep into our heart. But seriously, y'all, if you are willing to begin to walk this walk of what's the job that everyone else thinks is beneath them, I'll do it. If you begin to walk that, slowly but surely, your heart is going to start believing it. And what I mean by believing it is your heart will start to believe that, yeah, I'm not too good for anything. I'm not too good for anyone. I'm purely here by the grace of God. All I have is his. All I have has been given to me. And that's really where I want to finish tonight. I know I'm, I'm already supposed to be done, but I would be remiss if I didn't say this. All of these things that we've talked about are only effective to the extent that they're born out of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Full stop. And it, it would be crazy of me to preach a sermon talking about the ways, the effective means of fighting against pride. And I didn't mention believing the gospel. So I'm going to dare to be boring here. And I'm going to tell you the gospel that some of you have heard hundreds of times. Some of you heard millions of times. Well, probably not that many, thousands of times. Others of you maybe for the first time ever. The gospel of Jesus Christ first tells us about ourselves. It tells us that on our own, we're people that are selfish, we're petty, we're envious, we can be cruel, and that all together we are in a state of spiritual deadness and hostility towards God. And all of that together means that we are deserving of the wrath and punishment of God. He made us for so much better. He made us for fellowship with him and living in the harmony of how he created us and we've abandoned that. Judgment, wrath, punishment is what we deserve. But God did not allow that to be the end of the story. God instead sends his only begotten son, Jesus, the one who has been in fellowship with him for all eternity. He sends Jesus to meet us in that place of hostility, of sin, of wickedness, of hurt. He sends Jesus into our broken world and Jesus takes it all. And at the culmination of it, 
he submits himself to death, even death on a cross. Talk about what's beneath you. The eternal son of God, blameless and unspotted, submits himself to death on a cross. And when he does that, he takes the punishment that we deserve takes it all upon himself so that we might be free, we might be forgiven, we might be cleansed. And in doing it, he says, not only am I going to take all that you deserve on myself, I'm going to give you my righteousness, my life, my perfect record, so that when God sees you, he doesn't just see a, a, a fresh slate and said, okay, here's your second chance, do better now. No, he sees a cleansed person that has the holiness and blameless of, blamelessness of Jesus himself. That's what he's given you. You have everything now if you are a believer in Jesus. You have the hope of eternal life. You have forgiveness of sins. You have his perfect record. You have the ability to cry out, Abba, Father, for he truly is your father. You have everything. Now let me ask you this. Of all those things that you have now as a believer in Jesus, which one of them is because of your own wisdom? Which one of them is because of your own hard work? Which one of them is because of your own strength and talent and goodness? I've seen y'all shaking your heads, you know. None of it. All of it is a gift of his grace. What do you have to boast in? What do you have to take pride in? What is there to be arrogant about? Nothing. The only thing, there is one thing to boast in, one thing to be arrogant about, and it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. You wanna talk about the antidote that fights against the poison of pride. It is coming back to that time and time and time again, daring to be boring, even when you preach to yourself. What is the gospel again? What has he done? What reason do I have to puff myself up and be boastful? Oh yeah, none. We talk about this great double exchange that happens when Jesus dies on the cross and he rises again on the third day. It's that in the first exchange, he takes your sin upon himself and in the second one, he gives you his righteousness. But it dawned on me this week, there's also another exchange that happens. Jesus takes upon himself all your guilt. He gives you his righteousness, but in so doing, he yanks the rug out from underneath whatever reason you have for pride and arrogance and boasting. He says, nope, don't need this anymore. And he basically gives you a choice in the same way in the gospels. He said, you can either serve God or money. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And now he says, you can either receive my grace or you can hang on to your pride and arrogance. Which one do you want? It's an easy choice, really. Let me let go of my own self-importance and pride and let me finally just lay at the feet of Jesus and say, all I am is because of you and your grace. Father, let these words of your scripture linger long 
and deeply with us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.